My favorite thing about being in the new collaboration space was the fact that all the fridges are stocked. And I know that that's not like a big thing. I know even in like hotels that you go to, the fridge is stocked. But at home, I have to stock my own fridge and I'm pretty bad at it. For lunch today, literally just now, I had a mess of like, oh God, this is going to sound really bad. Oh no. I, I had a mess of like mushrooms, fried bread, eggs, uh, <laughs> a bit of ham. I mean, that sounds pretty good to be fair. Basically, I, I cut up bread really small and then fried it in like a an omelette type thing. Fried bread in an omelette, by the way. This sounds delicious. It was really <laughs> what good. What are you talking about? Uh, but, but it, it sounds like a delicious omelette. Yeah. You're making it sound like you're like, oh, poor me. I'm supposed to talk about like, you know, avocados and healthy life and well-being. And instead I'm talking about fried bread omelette. So that's the good stuff. But it, <laughs> having the fridge stocked with like fizzy water and, and stuff like that. Oh, it was so good. It's it's the little things, I think. Yeah, but fizzy water doesn't fill you up like fried bread. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fizzy water. You're going back to the fridge a couple times a day. I don't know how we got there, but we did. No, and that's, I'm just thinking you're so much more ambitious than me. I'm like, even the kids are like, what's for dinner? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, surely there's some leftovers. Like, I don't, I, do I have to cook? Is this really a thing? Like, I don't know. Becoming an adult, I've realized one of the biggest challenges in life is just deciding what to eat for lunch every day. Definitely. I mean, the biggest challenge? Yeah. Lunch is just such a difficult meal. I just never know what to have. I guess it is reoccurring. That's yeah. why you end up having fried bread, right? Well, and that's, you know, when we go to AG Comps and we were on cruises, I was like, this is just so nice. There's no thinking. You just yeah. walk in. There's a whole buffet of options. You don't have to do any thinking. And then <laughs> as just, you know, a regular adult human, you have to walk into the fridge and like open it up and be like, how can I creatively combine everything in here to find something that I'm going to enjoy? And it's like, by the time you remember to go look at the fridge, you're already hungry. So it's, you know, two strikes against you. And that's how you end up with fried bread. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Shall we dive into some Watchtower Weekly? Let's do it. Okay, there is a 90% chance that TikTok will be banned in the US. This one reported by Business Insider and Apple Insider. The chances of TikTok getting banned in the US have soared to 90% after their CEO recently gave an evasive testimony to Congress, according to Wedbush analyst Dave Ives. So Ives says that in a note on Monday, it's a matter of when, not if, TikTok gets banned in the US. Such a ban would be unprecedented, uh, but it also highlights growing concerns that TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, is beholden to Chinese government and could ultimately enable some form of spying on TikTok's user base, which is currently standing at 150 million Americans. The bipartisan leadership going through the beltways now lays the path for a ban, and the final straw will ultimately break the camel's back for TikTok if the CFIUS ruling around the corner with a formal Biden White House statement is likely the next step is what I've explained. TikTok CEO argued in his recent testimony that not only is TikTok popular in the US, but it is responsible for bringing worldwide exposure to American musicians, artists, chefs, and many more. While users in the US represent 10% of our global community, he writes, their voice accounts for 25% of the total views around the world. The CEO also stresses how TikTok prides itself on being a platform that helps US companies, many of them small businesses, thrive. 
He says that over 150 million Americans use the platform and that we know that we have a responsibility to protect them. Consequently, his testimony was split into emphasizing what specific steps the company is doing to address US concerns and also denying Chinese connections. Let me state this unequivocally, he continues. ByteDance is not an agent of China or any other country. For its part, TikTok has floated Project Texas, which is a 1.5 billion plan that would move all of TikTok's data to the US servers currently operated by Oracle. TikTok is still transitioning to Oracle, which means it is currently also deleting historical protected US user data stored on non-Oracle servers. When this is complete later in 2023, the CEO says that there will be no way for the Chinese government to access US data or compel access to it. But also any ban on TikTok wouldn't mean its base of obsessive users immediately lose access to the platform. Instead, the ban could mean that TikTok will either be granted a three to six month window to go public via an IPO or sell itself to an American company. I've said that while the price tag will be eye popping, TikTok's strategic value and consumer platform will have a number of financial and tech strategic players interested once a sale becomes the formal path. The CEO argues that a ban on TikTok hurts small businesses, damages the country's economy, silences the voices of 150 million Americans, and reduces competition in an increasingly concentrated market. TikTok will remain a platform for free expression and will not be manipulated by any government, he says. Oh, that's a lot of information. It's a ton of information. It's very interesting to me in this case that there are obviously... American companies stealing Americans' data, and that's okay. <laughs> I mean, like, there isn't any sort of, you know, giant uh, formal Biden White House statement around that type of thing. But if a Chinese company steals Americans' data, that's not okay. And I understand, like, the governmental changes between those two and, and like, you know, using it for, for nefarious means and all of that kind of thing. But there are American companies and even many other countries around the world that use data in the wrong way for nefarious means that have American customers and are not a social network where people, you know, take videos of, hi, I've got this new toothbrush. That's my experience of TikTok. (laughs) There seems to be a precedent setting that is happening here, which is quite interesting. They are using TikTok's name and TikTok status to almost like set a precedent for foreign companies and foreign social networks that need to operate in the US with US users. I don't know. It feels like something like that is going on. I feel like at every corner of the internet, there's a story about a TikTok ban. And it's so hard because TikTok has become so ingrained in our society. It's almost like maybe we do need governments putting down wider restrictions around it, but banning it completely also feels quite extreme. It's interesting to me that you said that stealing data, because, you know, they're not doing anything wrong other than like doing what every other company is out there doing, where it's, you know, they're just using the information that their users are providing to them. I think my favorite thing right now with all of this is the my kids are playing TikTok videos of the U.S. senators asking questions. And it's like, I don't think people that understand technology at this level should be making any technology decisions. This is this is scary to think that TikTok's on the house Wi-Fi. Can it turn on my toaster? 
I mean, they didn't say exactly that, but it's it's basically what it's coming down to. And it seems very villainizing and very like, well, it's a China problem and we're going to make it all about that. And it's like, I don't know if you've looked around U.S., but like a lot of your internal country companies are not doing awesome things with the data that they're getting from American customers. So maybe you should just check back you know, your Senate trial histories and see which American companies you've had issues with as well. Like, why is this such a big giant deal? I, I'm not sure if it's we only we can exploit our own people. Like, it's it's very weird. Yeah. Okay. So this one is called Acropolis Now, and it's cropped and redacted photos and images suffer privacy fail on Google Pixel smartphones. So this one was reported by the Register, and it's starring any 2018 or later device. If you've owned a Google Pixel smartphone since the 3 series came out in 2018, any screenshot that you've cropped or redacted on your Pixel could possibly be restored without much fuss. So the reverse engineers Simon Ahrens and David Buchanan, who found the bug, and it produced a proof-of-concept recovery tool and dubbed it Acropolis. A Acropolis, yeah? And noted that this bug is a bad one for folks who are concerned about their privacy. The flaw lies in how Google's image editing app Markup, available for the Pixel line, truncates PNG files after they are edited, or namely it doesn't. Essentially, if you use the app to crop out sensitive stuff from a screenshot, Google's code doesn't properly shrink the actual file, leaving the cropped out portion lurking at the end of the data string, which can potentially just be reconstructed. Even though you can't see the cropped out area in an image viewer, the data is still there and can possibly be recovered. That means if someone gets a hold of your cropped image, they can try to recover the seemingly missing part. If the image was redacted by scribbling over certain parts, those areas may be visible in the restored pictures. So Google has since patched Acropolis, and that's all well and good going forward. Now you can crop, redact, and share without fear your future images can be recovered. But there's no unsharing screenshots that are vulnerable to the exploit. So definitely make sure to install the latest version of Android security updates, Pixel device or not. If you have an affected Pixel device and you've cropped out redacted screenshots and shared them, whoever has them can potentially recover that data. So once you've installed that update, future screenshots should be okay. In a recent update, David Buchanan uh, of this Acropolis fame now says that Windows 11's snipping tool and Windows 10's snip and sketch, these cropping utilities also leak data more or less in the same way. If you take a screenshot and save it to disk and then crop it on Windows using those Microsoft tools and then save over the original part, that file still contains the cropped out portion that can then be recovered. I can kind of see the approach of like why you might want to implement something like this because you can then have the app almost recover the bit that's cropped and you don't have to like save it in memory somewhere else and and you can undo that kind of stuff but i don't know if you're taking bathroom selfies and you realize that the mirror (laughs) needs to be cropped out (laughs) because it's showing something not a whole lot of luck yeah I'm sure we've all cropped out a dodgy reflection or two in our time. (laughs) So, yeah, I think it's still quite dodgy. I think it's more like when I think of this, like I'm not good at photo editing or anything like that. Just ask my kids. But I use this for like, okay, I have to send this document to the bank. So I'll take a picture of a bank statement and then I'll like try to blur up the data or copy stuff. And it's like, oh, 
okay, what did you do there? And it's like, okay, never mind. You did it wrong. Good job. Oh, oh dear. Well, you know, but it's an American company, so we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like this one's probably caught some people out pretty bad. Ah, uh, I think if you have the, the chances of you having the right image and the right recovery tool are very, very slim. Yeah. But as with anything, it's a, it's a vector of attack. If you were taking really sensitive images of documents using this, it could be something of, of note. But it's good that they've fixed it. It's, it's good that, you know, there's researchers out there. It's good that Google listened to them. I, I see a positive to this. So this next one is employees are feeding sensitive business data to chat, uh, chat GPT. I'm going to say chat GDP at least once during this news article <laughs> because, yeah, the GDP of something is so in my head that I cannot read GPT. <laughs> Employees are feeding sensitive business data to chat GPT and it's raising security concerns. So chat GPT has gone huge in the last couple of, I'd say like weeks. It's, it seems to be like hitting mainstream television and this is huge. And it's a really helpful tool at like summarizing information and gaining information on something. And more than 4% of employees have put sensitive corporate data into the large language model, raising concerns that its popularity may result in massive leaks of proprietary information. Because remember, this is a learning language model. So you are feeding it things for it to learn upon. And employees are submitting sensitive business data and privacy protecting information to the large language models, such as chat GPT raising concerns that artificial intelligence AI services could be incorporating that data into their models and that information could be retrieved at a later date if the proper data security isn't in place for the service. In a recent report, data security service Cyberhaven detected and blocked requests to input data into chat GPT from 4.2% of the 1.6 million workers at its client companies because of the risk of leaking confidential information, client data, source code, or regulated information to the learning model. In one case, an executive cut and pasted the firm's 2023... Tr <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't get this out because it's so stupid. In one case, an executive cut and pasted the firm's 2023 strategy document into chat GPT and asked it to create a PowerPoint deck in another case, a doctor inputted his patient's name and their medical history and asked ChatGPT to craft a letter to the patient's insurance company. As more and more employees use ChatGPT and other AI services as productivity tools, the risk will grow. This was from Howard Ting, the, the CEO of Cyberhaven. There was this big migration shift from on-prem to cloud, and the next big shift is going to be the migration of data into these generative apps. And how that plays out remains to be seen. I think we're in the pregame, not even the first inning, he said, because I don't use baseball metaphors. With the surging popularity of OpenAI's chat GPT and its foundational AI model, the generative pre-trained transformer or chat GPT-3, as well as other learning models, companies and security professionals have begun to worry that sensitive data ingested by these training models could resurface when prompted by the right queries. Some taking action, uh, JP Morgan, for example, restricted workers' use of chat GPT, and Amazon, Microsoft, and Walmart have all issued warnings to employees to take care in using the generative AI services. 
Uh, the language learning model may be used for collecting far more information than users or their companies may be aware of. The risk is not theoretical. In a 2021 paper, researchers from a who's who list of companies and universities, including Apple, Google, Harvard University, Stanford University, all found that the so-called training data extraction attacks could be successful in recovering verbatim text sequences with personally identifiable information and other information in, in training documents. Only a single document was necessary for an LNM to memorize verbatim data, the researchers stated in the paper. And we'll link to that paper in the show notes because it's quite interesting. But have either of you used chat GPT for anything yet? Even just writing fan fiction uh, <laughs> for anything? Yeah, I've used it to come up with a lot of different Harry Potter fan fiction stories. Maybe I'll try find one because it was pretty hilarious. I think I remember one where we made a spell that gave Ron abnormally large hands. That was pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> I've used it with homework so far. I've tried to purposely give him information so that it pulls out answers to show him that he can't just use ChatGPT to do his homework. It was successful in showing him that it wasn't good for that time, but it's not good enough to make him not use it forever. You know, Dave is actually fascinated with this stuff. He's just watching it learn and, and he's very much right there with Ting on the, this is the beginning of it. And like, we're really at a spot now where in the next few years, this is going to be hugely transformative into how we do things. When I think about, you know, somebody copying and pasting a company document and putting it in there, like, I don't know if you've ever worked with those people who are, are talk, but not walk. I think of those people who are like, oh, yeah, I can totally do this. I can see them, you know, well, let me just grab the, the P&L statement, run those things through there and say, based on this P&L overview, I would suggest we need to do this with our hiring strategies. It's not them. It's this computer that's learning all this kind of stuff and telling you where to go with it. I hadn't thought about it as a productivity tool. And I think that's a different mindset to think of because it's it really is something that's going to help people be more productive than a lot of, you know, when I think of my kids in the education system, like it's learning how to learn and learning how to present yourself. And if you can use a tool like this to help you get your point across in a more cohesive way, it's going to be something everyone's going to use. Don't know whether that makes it something good or bad, like, you know, putting the value-based proposition on it is a difficult thing, but... It's definitely going to be interesting. I look at it from a from a standpoint of using it very similar to researching stuff on the internet anyway. So I was looking at some specific points in an industry and I was like, I could go and I could learn all of these things. Like I could read a bunch of books and all of that type of thing. But I could also just tell this tool to summarize all of this industry and, you know, using cite me your sources and, and all of that type of thing and just give it to me in six paragraphs. And and it did it. Uh, it saved me so, like probably half a day. You have to do it with a certain amount of understanding that like you need to ask it about things on the Internet. I do think as soon as it gets to like you plugging in a bunch of information and being like, hey, so this was all the private information that my employees gave me. Write this annual report for me. That is a bad idea and people need to understand why it is a bad idea. Although incredibly tempting at review season to be like, OK, just summarize this for me. <laughs> I did not do that. Like, let me let me make that crystal clear. Preface that real quickly. <laughs> uh, I'm absolutely loving using it for all sorts of internet research but i am under no illusion that my search terms and 
you know, my usage of it is also probably some of this data that is being given away, like the things that I search. So, you know, luckily I just sporadically ask it to do some stuff for my radio show as well and ask it to, you know, create random letters in that kind of give me ideas about content and that type of thing. So I use it for like useless stuff as well. I I think that throws off the algorithm. (laughs) I'm I'm outsmarting it. Are you both not concerned though that we'll be feeding chat GPT so much information that eventually it's going to come for our jobs? I think, and using some of the other things as well uh, that are out there at the moment, like mid-journey, I'm really enjoying the fact that my job could potentially change and morph into the th- like using this as a tool. So I'm not necessarily scared of it coming for my job. I'm fascinated by using it as a tool for my job. The thing that scares me is OpenAI as a company seem to be fairly well regulated in what they are using chat GPT for. The next competitor to them I'm terrified is not going to do those same things, right? Like you can't ask it horrible questions. You can't get it to swear. You can't, you know, with mid-journey, when you put someone's photo into it, it creates a likeness that is obviously not that person, but like roughly looks like them. The next set of these tools may not be as restricted as these. And that's the thing that scares me about these. Agreed. (laughs) We got really deep there. Shall we play a game? (laughs) (laughs) Dropping in for a chat today is self-proclaimed former procrastinator turned excited imposter, Stu Hurst. Stu is Chief Information Security Officer, or CISO, at Trustpilot previously, and you have a heck of an all-stars list here. Just eat. Skyscanner, Photobox, Capital One, and the train line, and an impressive career across the security sector. Not only that, he is also a certified cloud practitioner and co-founder of Cyber Scotland Connect and an avid cybersecurity speaker. Welcome to the show, Stu. How are things? Yeah, thanks, Matt. That was quite a mouthful as a, a long show, <laughs> but, but all good. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. So first off, can you give us a bit of a background on you and your path into cybersecurity? Yeah, so I'm now in year 24, I think, in IT. I joined RBS as a 17-year-old as a mainframe developer back then. Not a very good one. I did about 12 years in, in the banking side of things and sort of third-line support, system support for internet banking. I had passions outside of work in music, I used to DJ and make dance music and those kind of things. So during the last financial crash, made a strange decision to take a year out, pursue a career in music, which failed big time. So then I came crawling back to to a real day job and got into a tech company. I uh, joined the train line back in 2011, I think it was. And a pretty typical entry from there it was somebody asked me to do it. Their security person left. I was doing some application support work at the time. I think I talked about security a bit in the past and I really just asked to pick it up and, and run with some of the compliance side of things. So PCI mainly back then, got tr- train line through two or three years of PCI compliance. It was actually quite a good intro to security as a whole because it just t- gave me a broad initial knowledge of lots of different aspects of security. And I sort of got the bug from there, really. And from there, I've had sort of 12 years in security in various roles at various companies that you've mentioned, covering... I guess now pretty much most aspects, tech ops, infrastructure, 
cloud at Just Eat. I did a couple of years for um, heading up cloud security at Just Eat. Quite a bit of compliance and risk and audit and those kind of functions. And then in March 2021, I joined Trustpilot. And I've been building out the team here and kind of getting things where they need to be. So it's been a bit of everything. And not all of it's been super successful. It might it might look that way on LinkedIn. Some of those roles were, were very tricky and big learning curves. So I think the journey's been a been a really interesting one. And I still feel like every day is a massive learning curve actually as as a security professional, regardless of sort of where you sit in the the job title side of things. You've spanned a lot of industries as well, which I find quite fascinating. Like the route from, especially in the UK, I find the the route from like big high street bank to security professional in in a tech company is pretty well trodden. I also think it's probably the the vastest difference between how two industries work (laughs) from going, you know, myself from finance to security. It's a massive difference in just the way that people think about stuff as well. I think just culturally, they're two worlds apart for me. And mm. not to say I didn't have a good time in that sector. And um, I sort of dipped my toe back into it a little bit. But tech companies, especially, the pace is incredible. And, and that, that's why we tend to love these environments is they're chaotic, but the pace at which you can do things is extremely fast. The decision making is really quick. So there's almost no time to overthink things. You've just got to got to do it. I think some of the shifts from industries haven't really been with any thought behind them. They've just been opportunities that have presented themselves at, at certain times in my career. Some of the companies have been reasonably similar in terms of how the tech stack is and the, the types of product that are available. So a few companies now with internet facing product and mobile applications. But even then, I've found that no one environment is the same. You know, so trying to even replicate work that you've done somewhere else often just doesn't work when you find yourself in that <laughs> in that new business. So yeah, it's, it's definitely been an interesting journey. I've, I've learned different bits from all of those places and good and bad, and sort of tried to take those those forward into these into the current role. Certainly, is there a typical path to become a, a CISO? Is there something specific that you need from a from a technical background in order to kind of make that next step? I wouldn't say there's a particularly typical route. In fact, most people or CISOs that I speak to have had very varying routes into into that role. Often it's not something they particularly choose. You just find yourself there or the opportunities popped up to, to do it after a certain period of time. There's quite a lot of charm linked in about this at the moment, about what those routes could be, how fast it might take to become a CISO. I think the technical argument is an interesting one as well. I, I personally haven't written a line of code in years. I can read it still, and I still very much get in the weeds with that incidents or vulnerabilities or you know some of the day-to-day technical work. Not that I, I don't necessarily do that work, but I'm part of the planning and, and strategizing of it. I guess, do you need to be overly technical? I think you need to have an understanding of lots of different technologies at a broad level to be a CISO. And I guess one of the difficulties I've found is the breadth of things just you, you need to know about. It's not just the security aspects, it's business. I feel like I need to know finance, ops, the product. I need to know the product inside out compared to anybody else in the business. I need to know all the security aspects. That's quite daunting, actually. And I think that comes after a period of time in a career where you've either been at different organizations and seen a bit of everything or gone through some of those different security roles where you can start to get a bit of a handle on the varying aspects of it. So no, right, I don't think there's an absolute defined route in. I do think it, you need to have been around businesses for a reasonable period of time to see how they function, what the risks are, how you can kind of influence at certain levels 
And, and what would you say is like being a, a CISO in, in 2023? Like, what's your anticipation for your role this year? Like, what are you anticipating? What's it like to be a CISO in 2023? Chaos, probably. <laughs> I mean, it's exhilarating and stressful all at the same time. It's kind of this whole bundle of, of things. It's daunting. It's probably not as glamorous as some people might think. I don't know what people's perception of a CISO role might be, but I tend to get involved in lots of heavy lifting and strategizing and trying to you know, work out certain things. What's it going to be like in 2023? It doesn't get any easier, I guess, is, is my, my main point on that. The risk landscape continues to change. There's always external things that happen. It's been war in 2022. has been a big driver of some of the things that have happened. The internet adoption continues at pace globally. Technology continues to change. You've got all of these kind of conflicting things going on that, that are subtly changing the role all the time. So you never particularly feel settled, if I so like phrase for it, which is good. I mean, that that's that every day is different. You never quite feel like you've got your head around everything. There's always something else to learn. <laughs> are there similarities between your days? Like, uh, you know, what, what does kind of... Uh a middle-ish day uh, look like at Trustpilot. <laughs> I also head up site reliability engineering just because security isn't crazy enough. So there isn't a standard day, honestly. I could be doing anything from trying to figure out the next quarter's planning and what we're going to try and deliver to recruitment or retention, mentoring, coaching the team, doing a lot of the, the kind of day-to-day land management side of things, major incidents. I mean, I, I've got a really awesome team that, that run with those, but I still... I still get involved in some of those, depending on what they are. And then just really liaising across the business. There's, there's quite a lot of evangelism that goes on as a CISO. You're trying to sell what it is the team's doing, get buy-in for it, get people to understand why we need to do certain things at certain times. So it's a very, very varied role. This is the, probably the first role I've had in security where I'm very close to commercial. We're obviously a SaaS product. We're here to, to sell product to, to the market, as, as you guys are. And there's a demand placed on us to have a certain level of maturity in, in security and to prove that. So security kind of really, really affects the bottom line here compared to some places I've been previously, which has a sort of added pressure, if you like. So it can be all of those things in one day, to be honest. <laughs> Was that part of the draw to working at Trustpilot? Security being... You know, well, trust being in the name, I guess. Absolutely. Um, when I was sort of poached for the job, it was around company was going to go public. Security needed to go on a journey there. And that security as part of a product that is built around trust is is an exceptional thing to be able to do. The more secure the product and company is and are, hopefully the more that drives the adoption of the product and therefore trust on the internet, which is what we're there to try and achieve. So it's very much aligned to the, the company mission. And that's what I've been doing for, for the last two years. I made some amazing progress. I've been very fortunate to work for companies that have had really strong business-led products where security can kind of really impact that. Yeah, you have a lot of experience running cloud teams in a number of organizations. And you mentioned earlier your, your previous role at Just Eat was around cloud security. What does that mean to you and, and why is it important to get right? Yes, yeah, so I've probably been involved in cloud since 2015 at Skyscanner. And even in those seven, eight years, this shift to cloud has been phenomenal. And, and I think I think we're still a long way from fully kind of being there as a wider kind of internet and, and tech adoption. There's still lots of businesses that aren't fully there yet. And now most reasonable tech companies on the planet are running their workloads out of cloud. Most of their data is in cloud. We all use SaaS platforms all day, every day. Yet our companies, very few would have their own data centers or be running things on-prem these days, certainly in the tech world. 
So I think that just that adoption and shift to those technologies has been huge. I think why it's important is it's very easy to get wrong, unfortunately, still. Lots of people and companies are still on a learning curve of trying to understand how to build well in cloud, how to secure it, how to avoid some of the pitfalls that go on. So I still feel like we're quite, even though it's been eight, nine years for me, we're still quite new. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of knowledge sharing going on about how to really get some of that, that right. I almost feel like it's a subset of just security in general. It's going back to basics in those environments and getting the real basics done before you move on to some of the, the cooler stuff. Yeah, so I mean, I built a cloud security team at Just Eat and I was very much, certainly not new to cloud, but I felt like that was the place where I, I did the most amount of learning on the environments themselves and, and how to avoid certain things. And I feel like they hold the, without naming products, all of them change all the time, right? There's all these kind of new new features, new, new things coming down the line all mm. the time. So it's quite hard to keep on top of that. What would you say are some of the kind of common pitfalls that you've seen when it comes to cloud security? Like, are there things that kind of repeat themselves over and over again? Yeah, I keep using the term basics, but for me, there's five or six things that I've seen in cloud environments across numerous companies. It's protecting your root account for some reason company starts seem to have historically done that very well or, or really understood what root account was was about in those those environments, how powerful they are and how much damage can be done. So I've seen companies without multi-factor on their root account. Logging is just a really fundamental thing because if you have an incident without it, you're not going to be able to find out what's happened. That, that's a particular banana skin. And then we've seen incidents, haven't we, over the last few years of, of public buckets are still happening, although companies are making it harder for that to to be a mm. thing. So I guess a lot of these are infrastructure related, configuration style mistakes or, uh, or risks. I think we're moving now into the world of much more complex vulnerabilities within cloud environments where it's less about the configuration of the environment and more around the endpoint. I think the, the vendors themselves, of which there are a few, are making it easier to a certain extent with the tool sets they've got. It's much more difficult to purposely make something open to the internet now in the way that it, it used to be. So we're starting to solve some of those those issues, but there's definitely been a repeat of the same types of incident, I think, over the last few years. Yeah, I think, you know, speaking from, from my experience, just from the design side as well, I, I think there's certain things that we're learning in terms of making the user interface obvious for some of these things where it's you know when something is open to the internet making it really clear that like it is and that's what your settings are are, are currently set at one of the things that's really on my mind as i you know as i look through certain tools and and that type of thing like google drive for example or, or google docs you know just having that link open it's such a common thing to to have the link open to everyone and kind of shared wider than it needs to be by default every time i look at the ui for that i'm kind of answering that from a design side but it's it's something that i don't think as a as an internet we have got right yet i think we started out in cloud with the best intentions you know the idea was to give everybody the power to build quickly and leverage the power of those infrastructures with everything that comes with that your resiliency and pace but we sort of forgot so that's the more fundamental aspects of how to do it properly and securely. I think we're coming back around to mm. that. So infrastructure as code and compliance as code, where it's almost impossible for you to go outside of some boundaries that the company has, has set. And yet you've still got a lot of freedom and power and ability to build quickly. But we've almost had to do that years after the adoption of 
with the technologies in the first place. And that's a bit of a mindset shift as well for, for engineers. I have empathy for engineering because companies ask a lot of them these days. They need to not only code and build things, they need to know about cost, resiliency, security. They've got to be a jack of all trades now as well, which is difficult. And the expectation placed on them is a lot. I'm finding things like the infrastructure is coming very powerful from a security point of view because it takes away the need for them to think about it. There's a set of guardrails or boundaries of which they can build in and you can't go outside the norms of those. And if you need to do that, you, you can build processes in place for, it, for that to happen, but with some eyes on or you know, a little bit more control that we've had in the past. What do you think has been some of the, the best advice that you've been given during your time as a CISO or, or generally working in security? Like what's the what's the piece that you hold on to the most? Yeah, there's a few things. Right? So one of the best things I got told years ago was to basically go and learn from people who've already done these things before. The security space is a very sharing space, right? So that's if you see as prevalent on LinkedIn and doing these kind of talks or conferences and things. The idea is to share the knowledge that we've gained and the learnings amongst our peers. I think we do that as well as anybody actually in, in industry. So I think trying to find people that have gone through the same thing that you find yourself doing and try and understand from them how they've navigated that. That took me a few years and that's something I try and do as much as I can. You're not going to have all the answers all the time. You're going to find yourself in environments where it's difficult and you don't really know what the answer is. But there'll be somebody in the industry who's probably solved that problem. And if you can find them and use them, that's definitely worth doing. I think the second thing that I've talked about quite publicly over the last few years, not just for CISOs, obviously, but security is bonkers. It really is. It's a high stress role. It's 24-7 a lot of the time. And I think looking after yourself as best you can physically and mentally is just a super important thing to, to do. It's obviously important for everybody, but I've historically not been so good at downtime and switching off something I've had to really force myself to do over the last few years on, on holidays or once the work day's finished is just trying to say, okay, yes, I'm contactable if something crazy happens, but I'm not going to sit and look at messages all night or fret about things. I would say a few years ago, I found myself reading constantly into the evening just to try and keep up to speed with the industry on Twitter, reading blogs, and I've had to really try and remove myself from doing some of that. As much as I feel like I might be losing some knowledge there, it's just, it's been too overwhelming too tiring. I think the, the element of, sort of self-care for security professionals will go a long way if you can make adjustments. I think that's some great advice and applicable to a, a lot of industries. But yeah, very, very applicable to CISO and, and working into security. Finally, where can people go out to find more about you or any of your talks? Yeah, I'm pretty vocal on LinkedIn, so you're welcome to connect with me there. Talks of mine on YouTube, and I probably do about five or six speaking engagements a year depending on the event so i tend to put those on linkedin perfect all right well thank you very much nice off. okay both are you ready for the final round of rapid fire security questions i mean i don't think we've created another game so i'm slightly worried that no i'm not ready to play this for the last time <laughs> <laughs> well we're actually looking to bring back an old game matt are you happy about that oh yay for the work that it creates me and not having to like create a new game yes i'm 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 very much for that so we would like our listeners to vote and have their say which game they would like to see come back on the podcast. We're going to include a link to the poll in the show notes. So yeah, get voting, have your say. Oh, already 
I think it's definitely going to be higher or lower, right? Like, I, I feel like that's the one that we get all the feedback about. So if you really don't like higher or lower, like now is the chance to to vote for the for the other one, whatever that might be for you. The other one. That, you know, that one. And by higher or lower, Matt means play your passwords, right? <laughs> okay, so this is the final round of rapid fire security questions. And it's the game where we rapidly fire security questions at each other to achieve some random but memorable wrong answers. We get 60 seconds on the clock. So who is going to go first this week? Oh, I'm in a weird mood as well. So this is going to come out real bad. I feel like I'm going to go first. Okay. Yeah, that's why I want to go first, because I think Matt's going to have a really good adventure with it. And I think having him be the final answer of the final round, (laughs) there's some poetic, you know. I like it. Moment to that. Okay, here we go, Sarah. All right. What's the name, breed and colour of your first pet? Mr. Wobbleton his teal and a um hanky puff nice describe your perfect vacation oh definitely the known what new hobby have you taken up recently um is this your new hobby <laughs> uh, soap carving yeah exactly soap carving Soap carving, I like it. Name a guilty pleasure. Exercise. (laughs) (laughs) What's your favourite form of self-care? Eating avocados. That's a horrible answer. What did you last rage quit? These are hard questions, Anna. What is it so hard today? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, Singing in the rain. What can't you live without? Peanut butter toast. Okay, that's it. I don't know. These those are horrible answers. The, today was, I was all prepared for Matt to have a hard time and struggle with that. I was not prepared for me to be <laughs> struggled by. All I've got in my head is soap carving now. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds pretty fun to me, but you know. I just like the fact that it had to live somewhere in your head, Sarah. Yeah. It's on your to-do list today. Maybe you saw some soap in a particular shape and you were like. It's soap carving. Yeah, I could take up soap carving. <laughs> She's going to become champion soap karma 2023 i like it goals okay matt so here we go what's the best thing in your wardrobe um my grandmother (laughs) (laughs) name a song that means a lot to you uh the uh, peach of the conversation what's one habit you just can't break uh climate change is that a habit um, <laughs> if you could revisit one moment in history, what would it be? Um, uh, Eurovision 94. What's your love language? Uh, pizza. What movie could you watch on repeat until you die? Uh, the employee welcome video. <laughs> What's the best advice you've ever been given? Uh, write poetry. Excellent. That's all the questions. I'm scared that your grandmother lives in your wardrobe. <laughs> my, Let her out, Matt. Let her out. My brain went write poetry, and then my my other half of my brain was like, 
about civil engineering. Excellent. There you go. I didn't finish that one, but that's where the weirdness went there. <laughs> it sounds like chat GPT wrote all your answers. <laughs> <laughs> if it did, I think it would give better ones than that. I was going to say, yeah. let me know because I could certainly have used that assist. <laughs> I don't know why my grandmother is in my wardrobe or why in all of history I would go back to Eurovision 1994, which is the one with Riverdance in it. <laughs> With Michael Flatley. <laughs> the fact that you know that that was 1994, that must be very uniquely British. I have been doing some research for a, a radio program that I will be putting out about the 90s and Eurovision. Of course. Two of my favourite subjects. Nice. If you've never seen Michael Flatley Riverdance, uh, Google it. It's a thing of beauty. I've heard it's haunting. I just, I don't get how he flows his shirt so much uh, while disconnecting entirely his bottom half from his top half. Or... Why the cameraman seems intent on focusing on the top half when nothing happens. I think you're putting the random in random but memorable today, Matt. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was on it. I was in an odd mood. Nice. I guess that's all. I think that's it. Is that a wrap? Time to say love you bye. Love you both. Love you bye. Bye bye. That's good. Uh, it's going to be on record now that my grandmother is apparently in, my wardrobe. <laughs> in your wardrobe. She's probably watching Michael Flatley on a VHS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs>